now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I'm Michael Hendricks, Senior Fellow and Director of State and Local Policy at the Manhattan Institute, and I recently published a piece on persuasion entitled, Yes, in My Backyard. There was a moment that really inspired me to write this piece recently. It was a moment when the flip switched on Austin's real estate. A home was listed $370,000 on December 30th, 2020. Minutes later, buyers were lining up, traffic jams were forming, and by the New Year's deadline, there were 96 offers with a winning bid at $541,000, 46% above asking price. You know, this house was not alone across the rest of the country. Housing prices were being bid up all across in every community imaginable. The median sale price for a home just surpassed $400,000, the highest ever. By the way, this home in Austin recently was estimated by Zillow being worth $708,000, 91% above its original listing price just a few months ago. There are fewer starter homes available for working families all across this country, and they're pricier than ever before. Home ownership is on the decline. People are concerned. Our recent polling at the Manhattan Institute found that the cost of housing and homelessness with leading concern across the 20 fastest growing metros in America. And this housing crisis is not just a coastal problem anymore. This housing crunch is spreading. We're seeing fast growing housing prices in places like Boise and Salt Lake City. We're seeing it not just in the coastal hubs of Washington, DC and New York City, San Francisco or the like. This is now in Dallas, Denver, Atlanta. It's, it's spreading. And if you don't have a housing crisis today, I guarantee you it's coming for you five or 10 years down the line if we don't get a handle on it now. And in my piece for persuasion, I try to give us a solution, a reason for why we got here, a sense of what the case may be made for reform and where we can go from here so that this housing crisis not only won't spread, but hopefully we can get past it and have a case of housing abundance in this country for more Americans than ever before. Michael Hendricks's piece called Yes in My Backyard was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Harvey Mansfield. Harvey is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Government at Harvard University, where amazing enough, he has taught since 1962. So he has coming up on his 60th anniversary of service. When I was a graduate student in political theory at Harvard, Harvey was, of course, a professor in the department. And so he was not on my dissertation committee and we disagreed about many things politically. I always enjoyed taking his classes and learning from him. This conversation is no exception. We talked about why conservatives should be deeply committed to the precepts of philosophical liberalism. We discussed what all of us can learn from Tocqueville, the thinker on which Harvey is especially renowned as a translator and interpreter. And we discussed the nature of Donald Trump, whether he should be understood as an enemy of liberalism or as a demagogue who simply wants to be loved by whoever it may be. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Harvey Mansfield, welcome to the podcast. My pleasure to be here. There's been a really interesting debate in the last few years among conservatives 
about how to feel about liberal democracy and how to feel about liberalism in a philosophical sense more broadly. You are, as you reportedly announced the day you received tenure, a proud conservative. How do you see this debate within the conservative space? How do you think conservatives should think about liberalism and liberal democracy? They should hold to it. I would just make some general observations. I like our good old tried and true liberalism that comes from John Locke. John Locke uh, and his, on the one hand, toleration, which is good for intellectuals, and private property, which is good for businessmen. So that already you see the basis for a two-party system within liberalism. And I think that's the kind of thing we should hold to. And he protects this view of liberty with constitutionalism. This has been worked out by the American founders. So that liberal democracy means democracy with liberties. That means with guaranteed rights, rights which are guaranteed against majority interference. The problem in a republic is not so much minority exploitation as majority faction. That was the word which is used in the Federalist or tyranny, the majority in Tocqueville. I think those who best understand democracy fear its tendency to an uproarious and uh, overbearing majorities. The reason is the main problem is that a majority tyranny looks like a majority justice or even a majority view of the common good, what these conservatives now want to do. But those two things need to be distinguished and made operable. And you make them operable with the usual devices of constitutionalism, separation of powers, bicameral legislature, federalism, plus the Bill of Rights, which are amendments to the Constitution. Don't forget the Constitution itself. So all those things are, I think, still valuable, and we shouldn't endanger or much less throw them away. The problem that the conservatives are dealing with is their sense that they're losing, that conservatives can't win. That, in the first place, I think is exaggerated. I like a remark made by uh, Yuval Levin, who's at AEI, to this effect that the liberals think they're losing because they're not winning the economic issue. <laughs> Capitalism is thriving, but they care less that they're winning the cultural values question, whereas conservatives are the opposite. <laughs> They think they're losing because they're losing on the culture, and they forget that they're winning on economics, to which they attach somewhat less importance. So each thinks it's losing <laughs> because it's losing what it most wants. But if you look at those two things, that's sort of economics and culture, that just goes back to the two rights in Locke, the economics, private property, and culture toleration. You know, I think it, we're still within the liberal mantra, and we should hold to it. And I think perhaps we would a little more if we understood it better. There's something very interesting where I've talked before in the podcast, it sometimes puzzles me that progressives say, you know, all of America is racist and white supremacist. 
but also we want to have more restrictions on freedom of speech and we somehow trust that the people who are going to be making and enforcing those decisions will miraculously be on our side. It seems to me that there is something similar and perhaps even more extreme form going on in so-called common good conservatism. They feel like they're losing the cultural questions. They're not able to win debates over the questions that exercise them, whatever those might be. It varies a little bit between different members of that movement. And yet they somehow imagine that a government which has a lot more centralized power, which isn't constrained by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to the extent that governments now are, would miraculously be on their side. And I always think, what on earth gives them the confidence that that's going to be the case? Yeah, that's a very good point. I think both the progressives and the conservatives are under a delusion, (laughs) just as you say, that we don't need to take measures to distinguish a tyrannous majority from a reasonable one, but we do. And a lot of our politics is about that difference when you come down to it. So why do you think that the American conservative movement, which was always different from European right-wing and especially European far-right-wing movements because of its commitment to liberalism, is now starting to doubt that commitment, both in the intellectual sphere by people like Patrick Deneen, but also, I would argue, and I'm intrigued to hear whether you agree, in the political sphere by people like Donald Trump? Yeah, well... Trump is maybe a special case. (laughs) Trump I consider to be a demagogue. I don't think that he's essentially a man of conviction, but a man of the desire to be loved. That's the classic definition of a demagogue is a person who wants to be loved, and he doesn't care by whom. (laughs) As long as you love him, he loves you back. And if you don't, then he doesn't like you or even hates you. And so this is sort of politically neutral, And I think that's the case with Trump, that he just saw the opportunity to hijack the Republican Party, but it could have been the Democratic Party. And so attributing to him a set of beliefs is finding permanence in something that's pretty contingent. Gary Kasparov likes to say when people worried that Trump was playing three-dimensional chess, Kasparov angrily responded, he plays checkers. (laughs) And the same way, you you seem to be suggesting that to honor Trump with being... liberalism is to impute too much coherence of ideology to him. Yeah, he's a vulgar man. That's what I think essentially defines him. And he reminds us of just how vulgar democracy is. (laughs) It is something about it. Democracy isn't on its own, refined or cultivated. That's what comes from liberalism or the opportunity that democracy offers to give scope to intelligent and artistic and um, economic individuals who can achieve. So that's something that Trump is really a vivid reminder of, of popular vulgarity. And we should not mince that or hesitate to use that word vulgar because it bites. So Trump is therefore, uh, in a way, more democratic than we are. He's more authoritarian, which I mean means sort of arbitrary or whimsical, changes his view and insists on it. He's more authoritarian, but that's just what democracy is when it isn't made moderate and deliberate by constitutions. So he's the underside of our system. He's the very kind of enemy that we were warned against at the very beginning. So he isn't really that new, I would say. 
He got his opportunity because of primaries. If we chose our candidates for the president in conventions and smoke-filled rooms as we used to, they wouldn't have come up with Donald Trump. So he's a kind of consequence, if you want to say, of the increasing democratization of our country. And this is something that I think one can really worry about. Increasing democratization, which means forgetting that there is such a thing as tyranny of the majority. So I am sympathetic to the argument that primaries as they are run in the United States are a very flawed system. Essentially, it seems to me that you either should have a selection mechanism which is more similar to Europe and perhaps more similar to some parts of a selection mechanism in America's past, where people for real stake in an organization and professional experience in the organization make the choice of who their principal exponent is. Or you have to have a system where there's true mass participation by you know, 50% of the population. But with primaries, we're in a very dangerous in-between world, where it's the most highly motivated participants who are most politically extreme, who end up winning out. But there's nevertheless something paradoxical about what you're saying, because you're worrying about too much democracy at a moment when a lot of people, I would argue for good reason, are worried about the way in which Trump can constitute an attack, at least on liberal democracy, at least on the constitution. So is it that, in your view, the problem is too much democracy leading to an assault on liberalism? Or is it that too much democracy when it goes far enough, can actually undermine the preconditions of its own existence. Too much democracy undermines democracy. Democracy works well when it is limited or when democratic power is forced to slow down and think and argue, deliberate, lets a certain amount of time pass till people have expressed themselves and then make a decision which at that time seems timely and not earlier, not being forced on the country. So democratization is democracy that does away with democratic government or the rule of the people requires that the power of the people be limited, spread out and um, qualified and um, argued out. So this is, I think, the danger in democratization. And Trump is a danger because he attacks our norms, our conventions, by going directly to the people. That's what he does with his tweets, with his uh, rallies, the way he conducted the presidency, forcing everyone to discuss him every day and see him every day. He wore out his welcome, that's for sure, and he lost, (laughs) and When he lost, that was the one thing that he couldn't stand. He attacked John McCain for being a loser, and here he himself ends up as a loser, and that he can't stand. He didn't know how to lose. And the worst thing that he did came after he lost the election, which was to incite the January 6th riot or insurrection, whatever you want to call it. I'm a Republican, so I didn't have all the dislikes that liberals had in policies that Trump followed. But um, I was fearful that something like what happened in January 6th would occur during his term when the result would be worse. And um, it didn't happen. (laughs) The Democrats did their best to uh, impeach him and to resist him. But uh, he outlasted them until he lost the elections. I think that was a verdict on him. 
However, his supporters seemed to be very determined and hard to convince otherwise. So if we keep Trump to one side for a moment, what do you think is the reason why this distrust of philosophical liberalism over time against philosophical liberalism is gaining currency within conservative intellectual circles? Is that a genuine transformation? Is it just that we're paying more attention to illiberal or anti-liberal strains within conservative thought, but were there before? What explains this intellectual moment? Well, Trump was an explosion among conservatives. They didn't know how to handle him. From my former students, I go from never-Trumpers like Bill Kristol to Trumpistas like Charles Kessler at Claremont. So I try to keep uh, in touch with everybody like a mother hen, but I have plenty of wayward types. And I don't know what to do myself. I think there are many different possible reactions to Trump and It pains me that people with different reactions get so angry at each other instead of at the cause of it in Trump and also the beneficiaries of it in the Democrats. Democrats have not shown themselves to be so great ever since Biden got elected, to put it mildly. He is a real trouble and a real threat. He um, seems to be as much against conservatism as in favor of it. So against conservatism. He's against, as I said, he's against conventions. He's against morality, sort of conventional propriety. I use that word. The one thing he totally lacks is a sense of propriety. What is appropriate? Conservatives live by that, by propriety, by wearing neckties and so on, things like that. So trying to behave, not talking about the forbidden behaviors of women and trying to maintain one's dignity. And I think that's the way in which uh, conservatives express their support for liberty. The point about dignity is really interesting. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. Dignity is a term that has a kind of left-wing currency and history. You know, various forms of capitalism are supposedly against the dignity of individuals or various forms of more utilitarian strains of force. There's attempts to use the term dignity in order to justify aspects of the welfare state and so on. And then as you're saying, obviously, there is a more conservative concept of dignity, which is rooted in Christianity, which also includes a set of norms and expectations about how people are meant to act. And what's fascinating about Trump is that he attacks dignity in both of those forms. He doesn't believe that immigrants or refugees or various minorities have an inherent dignity that It is the responsibility of a politician to protect. And he also doesn't think that norms about a propriety or how you should act or how you should conduct your private life are sort of in need of being protected because otherwise you would be acting in an undignified way. So it's an interesting double attack on dignity. I hadn't thought of that before. That's right. On forms and formalities, that's a theme of talk fills. It's very important how you do something. It is true that our country, America, is always a can-do country, which means it always wants to find the shortcut to the end to do something. But we're also a due process country, which means uh, <laughs> you have to do it the right way. So he's totally lacking in a sense of due process, and that's the kind of dignity. Due process is giving legal form to your rights. To have rights is to be dignified. 
So in that way, the Democrats are right that there's a kind of inherent dignity to a human being. And that's why you should include them there. Inclusiveness features this importance of dignity. So dignity, you're right, is both on left and right. Is there any advice you would give, and I know that you're not usually in the business of doing that, to Democrats for how they can win over voters or keep the many voters, I believe, who voted for Joe Biden in 2020 because they were horrified by Donald Trump, but who are more moderate or even conservative, who believe in philosophical liberalism, but perhaps not in all of the forms of liberalism that are sort of manifest in the Democratic Party today? Well, they need to be more skeptical of the progressives within their own party. They can remain progressives, irrational as that might be, as long as they don't think that they have a permanent clutch or capturing of the people whom they appeal to. Progressivism has the defect that it can't abide a reverse. What progress means is that it's irreversible. I use the example of Obama introducing the Affordable Care Act. He said, you know, I'm not the first president to have taken up the question of health care, but I want to be the last. So the progressives have within them this kind of gradual narrowing of politics, whereby one issue after another gets settled, and that's called progress. So that means that you can't tolerate going back or reaction. That's why I think progressives are less tolerant than conservatives. Conservatives know that they will never defeat the progressives, that people who are attracted by that point of view, however unreasonable it may seem, nonetheless, people aren't totally reasonable. And especially those who claim to be acting solely on behalf of reason. So the Democrats should stay with a progress that's open to being reversed or turned around, decided by the Constitution and therefore by the Supreme Court, in order to keep them from being questioned or debated or discussed after their first past. I think they would profit from a greater sense of open-mindedness or really liberty of belief or confidence that the American people will choose pretty well over time. But I wonder whether the relationship between intellectuals, the bureaucracy, and the people has shifted in a really interesting way in the last few decades for sociological reasons that I think go quite deep. So, you know, you go to the very beginning of democracy, and I learned about the beginning of democracy in part by taking your class, so I'm very aware of talking at you things that you know very well. The basic problem seemed to be the intellectuals feeling threatened by the democratic impulse. The intellectuals in ancient Athens feeling that their ability to reflect about the world was under threat from the equalizing instinct of the ordinary citizen. And so for a long time, especially for conservatives, the fear was that in a democracy that isn't constrained by liberal norms and by constitutions, the people are going to use the bureaucracy in order to punish or kill the intellectuals, and we have to find ways of preserving the freedom of thought. It strikes me that when I look at the United States today, the situation seems to be a little bit different. And that's in part because, you know, intellectuals who come from a higher social class 
tended to be conservative, tended to be on the right in the past. But today, the more educated people are and the higher the social class, the more they tend to be on the left. And they tend to starve the bureaucracy with people with those ideas. So wouldn't you say that we have a kind of inverse situation today where actually the intellectuals are in control of the culture, as you're saying, even though they may not be in control of the economy and so on. And often the bureaucracy at a university, for example, is very much in their hands as a tool for the spread of their ideology. And the revolt against that by a lot of people is to say, but we don't want to buy your ideology and we don't want to allow you to use the bureaucracy in order to impose your views on us. So the nature of the tension between sort of the elite, the bureaucracy and the people, and therefore the very problematic of the tension between the elite and democracy seems to look very different to me in 2021 than it did in 1821 or than it did in ancient Athens. Yes, in ancient Athens, you had philosophers who were content to let um, the gentlemen rule, sometimes with some powers given to the people as well. But that way of thinking of philosophy was replaced by the notion that philosophy should uh, have an agenda and it should seek to enlighten the common people or uh, uh, people in the middle between (laughs) philosophers and the common people somewhere. And that's the period called the Enlightenment. So I don't think it's anything new that intellectuals are on the left. That's, I think, the picture of modernity. If the left means uh, standing for progress, and progress means progress in liberty and in science, then that's for the most part on the left, and especially after Locke, when his combination of economic liberalism and intellectual liberalism came to be attacked so that the uh, intellectuals were no longer allies or friends of businessmen and became enemies. So this happens with Rousseau. The whole idea of keeping together these two sort of social currents of liberalism, namely private property and toleration, gets lost. What we have today are mostly progressive intellectuals And then a few conservative intellectuals who react against the progressives and also want to enlighten the people (laughs) in their way. And so we now have more of an argument than I think was originally intended by the founders of modernity, but um, in the universities, much less. It's striking that the range of argument in the universities is so much more narrow than in American society as a whole. That, I think, is a great danger, more for the universities than for American society. The universities are the source of our experts, and it should be of our open-mindedness. But um, they've stopped being open-minded. I think that's a real problem. And that is getting worse and worse. That, I would say, this wokeism characterizes the recent decade. There's been a a real change even in the last 10 years, I would say, toward aggressive intolerance in the universities. Why do you think that that's a danger for universities, which is to say that the classic argument that critics of quote-unquote wokeness make is to say a lot of these ideas are misguided or they may have good intentions, but they're actually not going to work or they're going to make things worse. And 
you know, if they're embraced by universities and students are trained to them, they go out into society and become influential and it's going to lead to a lot of bad things. Whether or not you agree with that argument, it's kind of a straightforward argument. I think it's less immediately obvious why it's a problem for universities themselves. Do you mean by that that universities will fail to live up to their mission in the grandest sense? Or do you mean it in a concrete way that it'll actually undermine the social basis of financial and social support for universities in a way that they should worry about in a sort of purely self-interested manner? I would say both. <laughs> it's bad for the universities because they stopped pursuing the truth and start indoctrinating. And it's a danger to them because they're taking a crazy risk, totally unnecessary in my view, by being so partisan. I'm at Harvard. Harvard is now a byword for intolerance and for crazy liberalism. Harvard behaves publicly as if it were an instrument of the Democratic Party, its commencement and so on. The people that it invites, the professors that it hires, and it is attracting mockery and hostility. For example, this tax on endowment income said Harvard had to pay $143 million a tax <laughs> just for not being able to look a little bit more nonpartisan than they are. And also, in order to make the university open-minded, you don't need equal numbers of liberals and conservatives, just a few conservatives, occasionally, <laughs> once in a while, <laughs> invite and hire. But now Harvard hasn't hired a conservative professor, out in the, I don't know, in the last decade for sure, all across fields. So that, I think, is an unnecessary provocation that hurts in both ways, both intellectually and politically. You're taught in part by Leo Strauss, and there's a way of thinking about text and of interpreting text in the Straussian tradition, which when I was in grad school, I don't think I entirely understood. I'm not sure that I had a lot of sympathy for it. And simplifying grossly, and you will put me right if I get it too wrong, the idea is that you have to assume if somebody had something worth saying in the past, what they were saying was likely to be very unpopular during their time. And so you have to read texts with a lot of care and a little bit against the grain in order to discover what people were actually saying and thinking. I have to say that as I've gone from growing up in a period of time which seemed relatively peaceful with comparatively less partisan polarization, and as I've come to live in an era of deep polarization and a lot of mutual hatred and the kinds of orthodoxies that seem to come with that, I have come to have renewed appreciation of that basic idea. So how would you recommend to listeners of this podcast to read texts in a way that may help them discover surprising insights? Um, philosophy. Philosophy asks questions. Politics requires answers. So if philosophy asks questions, the most difficult and often the most interesting questions are those which are subversive that is, which question the cherished beliefs of the people among whom those philosophers live. So philosophy, it has to be understood as something inherently and necessarily 
subversive. It wants to unsettle the questions which most people and which societies require to be settled. So it's a dangerous occupation. And uh, philosophers have faced this difficulty by addressing other philosophers in a guarded fashion and addressing the people among whom they live in a more ironic fashion. For example, Socrates, who uh, tries to defend his philosophizing from the threats or accusations that are made that it corrupts the people and corrupts the young and um, keeps people from believing in the gods that they hold. And so Socrates tries to explain what he does, his questioning, by saying that he consulted the Delphic Oracle and Delphic Oracle told him he was the wisest of all men and he didn't believe this. So he went around asking questions to find out whether anyone else was wiser and he didn't find anyone who was wiser. So it's really hard to believe that he really thought that the Delphic Oracle said this or was a divine voice. He also claimed to have a divine voice within himself. So this is a kind of pretense. He needed to give a divine aura to his philosophizing. It isn't that he is against the gods or the god because it was the god who told him that he had to go around and question things. So that would be a kind of paradigmatic example of the way philosophers tell lies, to put it honestly or strongly, in order to protect themselves and in order to teach people to. So Leo Strauss was a man and a German Jew refugee came to America to escape Hitler. He discovered that philosophers before the 19th century made a practice of that kind of double speech and kind of protective covering of the essential, not so much truths as questions which lie underneath. And he was able to show, I think, with a lot of his studies that this was characteristic of the ancients and the medievals and of the moderns up to a certain point in the 19th century when history came to the fore and people began to think that every statement by a philosopher was a reflection of the history of his time rather than a reflection in the sense of a questioning <laughs> of the thought of his time. So all philosophers are subversive that you begin with, and they all tell lies, therefore, I say, up to the 19th century. And so one approaches a text with this expectation, and it leads to a certain amount of ingenuity. People who follow Strauss are often accused of perverse ingenuity, because they're always looking at what lies underneath. Of course, you have to look at the surface in order to see what lies underneath the surface. The surface has to lead you underneath itself. But still, uh, it is true that that is a characteristic fault of those like myself who are called Straussians. So it doesn't result in an ism so much as a point of view or an approach. We've talked about the present and we've talked about the past. So I suppose it only remains for us to talk about the future. What do you think the future 
of American conservatism will look like, in particular as a political movement? Do you think that it's current divergence from, or if you see Trump as a demagogue, indifference towards philosophical liberalism will become permanent? Or is it likely that the Republican Party will reaffirm a commitment to political liberalism? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not a predictor, and these are chancy things. All I can say is that there are basis for both, <laughs> for both a continuation of Trumpism, if that is an ism, Trumpish behavior, and uh, for uh, putting it aside or putting it to sleep. One hopeful sign was the recent election in uh, Virginia, Governor Youngkin, the Republican candidate, I think made a good job of keeping Trump at arm's length, not making his voters hostile, but also making it clear that he was not an extension or a believer in Trump. So if the Republicans follow that example, I think they'll be much better off than if they don't, but I'm, I'm not sure they will. And we also don't know what Trump himself is going to do, which might greatly affect things, or might not. He might just fade, and he might find that his appeal uh, is much less than it used to be. But so far, I don't think there's any clear answer to that. I'm glad that you mentioned Alexis Tocqueville, because you're one of the world's most renowned interpreters and translators of Tocqueville. And it seems to me that Democracy in America is a text which Americans love to quote, and love to refer to, love to put in the bookshelves, but often haven't read. What ideas in Tocqueville do you think can help us make sense of the nature of a country we live in? Why is it of such lasting relevance? And why should listeners who haven't, in fact, read Tocqueville go and crack open the copy they undoubtedly have in the bookshelf and actually wait for way through it? Yes, yes. You write Tocqueville out to be the Bible of American democracy. As I like to say, it's, uh, it's the best book on America and the best book on democracy. And it's about democracy in America. Some of it is about the nature of democracy in its theory, how it is in any situation. And some of it is about its special place in America. So it's not just a formal or theoretical picture, but it's also a view of it as it's practiced. We can start with the tyranny of the majority. Here, he agrees with the American founders, but he's worried that this extends to the mind. So he says that America is a country with very little freedom of the mind. And this is a terrible defect and risk. And it comes about because democracy focuses people on what is present and immediate, and uh, therefore on what is material. That's what's present. To build something of lasting value, you need to be able to control yourself, put your personality aside, and to look at those cathedrals that are built in Europe, built over centuries. Think of that. Could we build such a thing? Will we be able to repair the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris? Will we have the patience and the power to do something that takes a long time? And so sometimes you see this in American democracy, but a good deal of the time you don't. So materialism is a main intellectual risk of democracy. Matter or material benefit being what is before us and takes a lot of thought to look further 
beyond what's right ahead. And that means that intellectuals have become a kind of danger to democracy. Democratic intellectuals don't believe in the mind or the power of the mind, but they believe in grandiose theories of material motions, movements, large-scale causes which overcome individual accomplishments or thoughts or philosophy. So philosophy gets democratized, and this goes together with the further attack on the mind. So we see this wonderful paradox today that democratic intellectuals want more democracy than the American people who are not intellectuals want. <laughs> they speak for the people and ask for reforms that the people themselves haven't thought of or aren't demanding or wouldn't care about, really, but for their intellectuals to impose on them. And so this means that the intermediate associations between the government or the intellectuals and the people get hollowed out and weakened such that the democratic people runs the danger of what he called the individualism, which is falling back on your own devices and your intimate friends and your family in the belief that there's nothing you can do to affect society or politics as a whole. So politics loses its sense of accomplishment or achievement of potential power. And this means that you settle into a kind of centralized bureaucracy where the government does everything, takes over from you the pain of living, he says, <laughs> and sort of lives things for you, which is aided by modern technology. For example, toilets and buildings that flush themselves. Then even this elementary... <laughs> <laughs> duty of disposing of your effluvia is taken over from you. And we see the great advance of bureaucracy in the universities and during COVID, all the ways in which our lives are planned for us. We are given experts who mainly show us how to obey different rules, not why, and uh, not how to act on your own. Emily Mansfield, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces, 